0: Welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and His followers from the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on John chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 45. Please get out your Bible and follow along. How does the story of the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well connect with the regathering of the remnant of Israel in our day? What was the historical context surrounding her encounter with Messiah? Who were the Samaritans? Where did they come from? And why didn't the Jews have any dealings with them? How did Messiah tear down the theological barriers between them in the course of their discussion? And what does this story show us Messiah was and is doing to regather, unify, and restore God's chosen people? Stay tuned throughout today's program for the answer to these questions and more in John chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 45. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David with insight on today's portion.
1: We have a lot about the Samaritan woman. I'm trying to look at this from a little different perspective. You know, when we read the book of John, people think of that as a Christian book. And a lot of time has gone by since these events occurred that we're reading about in John. One thing that you find here
2: in John chapter 4 is this book is not about Christians. It's about Jews. It points out that Yeshua is a Jew. And so when we look at this book, what we should think about is What were the issues that were going on then
1: that Yeshua was dealing with? And, you know, I think there's another layer to this that we could really benefit from, particularly remnant people today. So, basically, if you were going from Judea to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria. And that's just how it was. So Yeshua had to take this path. And the story makes quite a bit here of this setting. And we've looked at a lot of this history already, but I think we need to look at some more of it. He came to the city of Samaria, Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, this is here to tell the Jews what was going on here. This creates for us a setting. So, if you're looking at this from the Jewish perspective, this is very meaningful. You can't just go on from here and ignore what this is about. There's something deep here. Now, we got the part about the Samaritans and the Jews.
2: Is there more to that? Well, let's consider this. The Jewish New Testament commentary comments on this verse. And by the way, Sychar is the Shechem of the book of Genesis. Shechem, the Archaeological site
1: of Shechem is just outside modern Nablus in Shamron or Samaria. And Jacob's Well, not far away, is a tourist site to this day. Now, I think that's kind of a neat thing to know that if you visit Israel, you can visit this same site where Yeshua had this drink of water at the well. So, This is something known long-standing for many generations that already had been known for a long time in Yeshua's day, and this is one of those things that has been unchanged down through time. And we know that Jacob had to have a well there. When we were doing our Midrash, we were studying about Jacob, and you might remember with Joseph, Not only what it's talking about here with Joseph, but earlier when he sent Joseph as a teen to go to Shechem to check on the brothers. Do you remember that? And remember that what they were doing there is he had a pasture there in Shechem and they were taking care of the sheep there. Well, you could not have a multitude of sheep like Jacob had on a parcel of ground that's a distance away from you, unless it was a well there.
2: So clearly Jacob did indeed have a well there in Shechem.
1: Genesis 33 describes the incident it talks about with Joseph. Jacob came in peace to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Paddan Aram and encamped before the city, he bought the parcel of ground where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. So this establishes for us that Jacob owned that parcel of land, that he paid good money for it. He himself selected it and established it there. Now, this helps us to understand why the Samaritans felt so attached to this particular place. You know, if you were them, you might think, and remember, they are descendants of Joseph. So this parcel of land would be very important to them. Later, Joshua twenty-four thirty-two says, they buried the bones of Joseph which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt in Shechem, in the parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for hundred pieces of money. They became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. So really, when you think of Jerusalem,
2: this is the city of David. This is Judah, right? But now we're talking about the children of Joseph. Different thing. I'm just saying they had a legitimate attachment to this place. It's more about this. Later on when they came into the land, actually it was
1: Ephraim and Manasseh, that was located in this area of Shechem, and this whole area called Samaria. And there's a city of Samaria very nearby that was eventually made a capital city. Now, here's what happened. There was a period of time when the tribes of the sons of Jacob, or Israel, were all one nation together. And at that time, they were all under the kingship of King David and King David's descendants. But what happened with that? Well, the scriptures describe for us a situation in which these northern ten tribes that came to be known as Samaria, sometimes called Ephraim, and sometimes called the kingdom of Israel. These northern ten tribes broke away from Judah. So, they no longer considered themselves a part of Judah. They established a whole separate kingdom from Judah.
2: And they had to justify that. So, how did they justify that? Well,
1: they decided that what had happened is that Judah had gone astray from the original Torah. Everything after the original Torah was this apostate religion of the Judeans. So Jerusalem is not legitimate, and everything they considered inspired writing after the Torah, that wasn't legitimate because it was part of this apostate group, the Judeans, that set up this
2: religion in Jerusalem. Now, why would they do that? Their leaders had
1: political reasons, didn't they? What would happen if these 10 tribes that broke away continued to go up to the temple to worship? how long would it be before the kings of this breakaway group would lose their kingship and the people would go back under the kingship that was in Jerusalem? So you see, they adapted their teaching in order to accomplish this political purpose of maintaining this ten-tribe
2: kingdom. This is what actually had happened. Now, having said that, we ask the question, that being so, does that
1: mean that the people in this ten-tribe kingdom are not
2: Israelites? Still Israelites, aren't they? Does it mean that they're no longer under the covenant? still under the covenant. But they're estranged from the worship in Jerusalem. That's what happened. And what happened after a period
1: of time, most of us know, this 10-tribe kingdom became very deeply entrenched in apostasy and even in idolatry. And of course, this led to gross wickedness. And Yahweh sent prophets to them to call them back, people like Elijah and others. But they did not repent. They just kept going deeper and deeper into idolatry until finally Yahweh gave them up to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came in and they. Deported the 10 tribe kingdom from the land of Israel. And we know what happened after that, right? After that, those Israelites who were deported ended up being scattered through all the nations of the world, losing their Israelite identity. They still were Israelites, but they didn't even know it anymore after a few generations. Well, when this had happened, there were still some people of that ten-tribe kingdom, really the most lowly people that even the Assyrians didn't care about, that ended up being left in the land, like a scattering of people, that for one reason or another did not end up as part of the exile. And later on, when other Gentile peoples came in to occupy that land, they became intermarried with that remaining group of people who had been the original Samaritans. And then those Gentiles that came in, that then became part of that group, they adopted this Samaritan religion of their own And after a number of generations, they were all intermarried so that what you had was a mixed race of people who were of Gentile extraction as well as being extraction of this remaining group who were from Israel, from the
2: ten-tribe kingdom. Now, as you think about this, doesn't it make you realize that these Samaritans are essentially the same people as the remnant today? In other
1: words, originally they were the same people, right, on the same land. I'm talking about the scattered ten tribes. They were the same people on the same land, children of Jacob. It's only this small group ended up getting left in the land and intermarrying with the Gentiles but what about the ones that get scattered? Didn't the same thing happen to them? Didn't they end up getting intermarried with the Gentiles too? And just because that happened, does that mean
2: that their offspring are no longer Israelites? Does not does it? Because being a descendant of Israel is something that's passed down. And
1: what about the covenant? Does it mean they're no longer under the covenant? So really, scattered Israel, scattered throughout the nations, is very much the same people as these Samaritans. In the same situation, the only difference is the scattered Israelites don't really know who they are, and these people did know who they were. So that's the only difference. But as to who the people were, Same people. Now let's uh, go on a little bit. At this point, we'll bring in Yeshua. It mentions Jacob's well was there. Yeshua, therefore, being tired from his journey, sat
2: down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. This well is what I would call a place of common ground.
1: Because the Samaritans knew they were descendants of Jacob. And they knew what the well was. The Jews were also descendants of Jacob. They knew that the well belonged to Jacob. So, I think it is so neat that Yeshua went there to Jacob's well. Because what that really is, is finding a place of common
2: ground to meet the Samaritans. And you know, long ago, when I started doing evangelism work with people,
1: one of the first things I learned that you need to do is you need to find common ground with someone as a place to start from in being able to bring across the message to them. And that's what happened here. Well, as I noted, Jacob's well had been a source of water for all of his sons. Not just the ten tribes, not just the kingdom of Judah, all of Jacob's sons. So we have the story here of the Samaritan woman Yeshua asked her, give me a drink. Yeshua spoke first. And this was kind of shocking to her. She didn't expect that. You know, she was really used, no no doubt there were other times that Jews went to that well. Because Samaria is right in between, right? Right in between Judea and Galilee, that whole area. So It's the shortest route. So, yeah, I bet you sometimes there were Jews that came through, but they didn't talk to the Samaritans. They just treated them as non-people. So he's sitting there. I'm sure it doesn't really matter to her one way or another, but she doesn't expect him to speak to her. So he does speak to her, and she says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, and it explains Jews have no dealings with
2: Samaritans. She recognized him as a Jew. And I find it very interesting that this is what the book of John is saying about Yeshua. It's not telling us that Yeshua is a Christian. It's telling us that Yeshua is a Jew. This is not the only place in the book of John where it presents Yeshua as being a Jew. A little later on, we're going to get to a place
1: where they're talking about this subject, and Yeshua says, we worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. Yeshua himself in saying we is saying he is a Jew. So it's not just her calling him a Jew. He himself is
2: saying he's a Jew. Do you know why? He is a Jew. That's the reason. They all know it. Do you know there's probably millions of
1: people who have read the book of John and never figured out that Yeshua is a Jew. But really, if we're going to know what's really happening here, don't you think this is crucial to the story? To really focus on this fact. And there's this dichotomy here that we're seeing between who the Samaritans are and who the Jews are. That's really important to understanding this
2: whole dynamic. Well, let's go on. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why not? Well,
1: we just want to be reminded of who the Samaritans were, that Jews had good reason to have no dealings with Samaritans because Samaritans from the
2: perspective of a Jew, were apostates. They broke away from true worship. You know, the temple
1: was legitimately in Jerusalem. And the sacrifices that were offered up at the temple were necessary. Atonement was
2: necessary. So, from the point of view of a Jew, these people, although they're of some Israelite extraction, they're living in sin. They're not covered by the sacrifices in
1: Jerusalem.
2: They, from the point of view of the Jews, are rebelling against the Torah by what they're doing. So it's not just that the
1: Jews were so pious that, you know, they'd look down at their nose at other people. Sometimes, you know, we kind of get that picture, but that really was not the whole story here, even if it was part of the
2: story. There were real reasons why the Jews felt that way.
1: That really are legitimate reasons because the worship that was established in Jerusalem by David was the true worship when established. There's no question but what that's true. Now, from the standpoint of the Samaritans, we've already gone into this. We've seen that they had what to them was a legitimate story too, right? To them, the Jews were the apostates. They had gone off into this other thing, and they were the ones, these Samaritans were the ones that were
2: staying true to the patriarchs. So here we have it. The Samaritans were there in the land
1: practicing this breakaway religion that had been established by them a thousand years earlier when they broke away from the worship in Jerusalem. And now, a thousand years later, this is still going on. And there's this big religious rift between the two sides.
2: So, as we go on, once again, we compare our own situation. When's the last time you as a Messianic have felt really accepted by the Jews? Don't they think of us just the same as they thought of the Samaritans? You know, we have broken away from what they consider the true religion and followed after this Yeshua guy and left true Judaism. That's how they feel about us. So we have a lot in common when we're talking about the Samaritans because. We who are the seed of Israel, we're these same people. In fact, as we're going to find out, that's why Yeshua was there. That's the reason he was there. So when she says this and brings up this matter
1: of the prejudice of the Jews against Samaritans, Do you notice he doesn't even answer her about that? Instead, he makes his own assertion. If you knew the gift of Elohim and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water.
2: Now, there are different ways of looking at this. Most of the time when we look at this and we talk about
1: the living water, we think about the Spirit which certainly is true.
2: But what Yeshua is talking about more directly here is himself, isn't he? Who it is who says to you, give me a drink. Do you notice he's making it about himself? Is that because he wasn't humble? and was full of himself. You know, there are people who interpret it that way. That's not why. There was a very good reason why
1: he made it about himself. And that becomes clearer as we go further along. The woman bites on this, gives a pretty big nibble, when he brings up himself. And she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From where then have you that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank of it himself, as did his children and his
2: livestock? She thinks that he's being full of himself. Doesn't she? She thinks he is so audacious to suggest that he's greater than Jacob. Isn't this the most audacious thing he possibly could suggest to a Samaritan? Right? It's all about Jacob to the Samaritans. So he goes right at the thing that she would be most reactive to. and just nails on that one thing by essentially saying that he's greater than Jacob. So, think like her. She's at the well. It's Jacob's well. It's in her land with her people. What does she think?
1: She thinks that well proves that she's part of the right religion. That's what she thinks. She's very secure in who she is. She's very secure in her religion, her religious beliefs. She's very secure as a descendant of Jacob. So she's feeling like she is really on solid ground. So by
2: mentioning Jacob and saying, hey, Jacob gave us this well, She has totally trumped Yeshua in her own mind. That's what she's thinking. Yeshua accepts her challenge and raises his bid.
1: He says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What is Yeshua really saying?
2: He's saying, my water is better than Jacob's water. I'm greater than Jacob. Isn't that what he's saying?
1: Now, believe me, she's not going to know that he's talking about
2: the Holy Spirit. This is a concept that's foreign to her and to the Samaritans. It's true. But to her, it's about his claim that he's greater than Jacob. How audacious is that claim in her mind? I'm thinking she's probably even getting a little hot under the collar now because of this guy. So she says, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty,
1: neither come all the way here to draw. Now, a lot of people, when they read that, they think, okay, she's giving up now because she wants some of this water.
2: No, she isn't. She's mocking him. She's mocking him. That's what she's doing. Like Okay, put up a
1: shut up. Where is this water you're talking about? You don't have any water. That's what she is saying. Right? You know what? I have talked to lots of people like her. People that are very confident in their religion. You don't say one thing to those people, and now all of a sudden they change their mind.
2: She's digging in her heels in what she's saying here. That's what really is happening. So now that she's all worked up, Yeshua is going to test her and see, okay, is she just the person who's all about her religion, or is it more to her? What kind of person is she? So, he asks her, go call your husband and come here. Now, obviously, he already knows the situation, right? And what is she going to say? Is she going to say, oh, my husband has the flu? She could, right? She could say... My husband's none of your business. But instead she said, I have no husband. Right there, Yeshua knew he was talking to a person with an honest heart. And she knew it too. She was being honest with him. No doubt furious, but honest. So, this is when Yeshua proves to her that he's greater than Jacob.
1: That's what he's doing here, telling her, It's well that you said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. He's not just a guy that claims self water who has no water,
2: right? He's a guy that totally knows her. Totally knows her life. There is no internet. You can't look somebody up on Google 2,000 years ago. There's no way that he could know any of this. So, by telling her things about her life that no doubt her heart is broken over.
1: That has to penetrate really deep on a visceral level. Now we're getting past the religion thing, aren't we? And we're getting into something really personal. And he knows all
2: about it. How disarming is this? So the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This
1: is a big thing when she says this. Because what this means is she's no longer trying to defend her position. She's recognizing that there really is something to this guy.
2: She's thinking he must be a prophet to know all of this about her. So, This changes the nature of the discussion. It's no longer her
1: being all defensive, but really with him telling her all this personal information and then her recognizing him as being in a spiritually superior position, they're coming closer together
2: now. They're able to talk about what really is on their mind. So right here
1: this woman is able to talk about the main religious issue that she sees as separating her and him. And now she's asking him very sincerely because she recognizes him as a prophet. And she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this is the big issue to her in her mind. This is what continues to separate her from him and from every other Jew. And I read this almost like, I don't want this to be an issue, but this is an issue. And that, when you see it in that point of view, Yeshua's answer is really kind of amazing. Yeshua said to her, A woman, believe me, the hour comes when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he's saying that her big issue is not really an issue at all. Because someday, neither the Jews or the Samaritans are going to be worshiping in either Jerusalem or in that mountain. So it doesn't matter. The issue is a non issue. He's tearing down the wall that's between him. And And this Samaritan woman, and what is left between them? Only the fact that they are both children of Jacob. That's what's left between them. And I think that is an incredible thing
2: that he did in tearing away that barrier. So, what he's saying
1: is that something has happened that erases
2: the whole question of where to worship. What could he possibly say to her that would make sense to her in her frame of reference? He says, you worship that
1: which you don't know, we worship that which we know, for salvation is
2: from the Jews. This would be the kind of thing you would think of
1: as confrontational. Like when you read this as a Christian, it seems like a confrontational statement to her, perhaps even rebuking her because she's not a Jew. But that's not why he said this. He said it because she already knows that salvation is from the Jews. She knows it because she believes the Torah. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. That's salvation coming from Judah. And it's in the Torah.
2: And I'm telling you, those people knew well the blessing of Jacob on his sons. Jacob was a big deal to those folks. They knew
1: about the blessing on the tribes. And if there's one person
2: that you could find in the Torah greater than Jacob, would it not be this coming one? Well, let's look at this a little more.
1: In terms of this theological argument, Yeshua has just won the argument. Because they both agree on this. She knows from the Torah, he knows from the Torah. Salvation is from the Jews. You know, people make a lot out of this statement, salvation is from the Jews. They don't really understand the conversation. They're both talking Torah talk.
2: Salvation is from the Jews because Shiloh, the Messiah, is from the Jews. So, I think what's happening right here is she's starting to have the light come on. He's leading her along
1: within her frame of reference. Notice, he doesn't quote the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't quote Daniel. He doesn't talk about the Psalms, like Psalm 110 or Psalm 2. He talks to her about what he knows she accepts, which is the Torah. That's what he's talking about.
2: And she knows from the Torah that salvation will come from the Jews. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. That's what the scripture says. The gathering of what people? What people? We have two children
1: of Israel sitting at Jacob's well, and they're talking about the
2: gathering of the people. What people are they talking about? The Cambodians, the Russians, the North and South after the Civil War. You and I, when we look at the context, we know who this is, don't we? People. This is from Strong's. The Hebrew word means specifically a tribe as those of Israel. That's the word used there. Both Yeshua and the Samaritan
1: woman knew what Jacob was talking about, what would happen when Shiloh would come, that he would gather the people,
2: the people of Israel, the people of all the tribes of Israel, That's what he was talking to her about. That's what this was all about. All the tribes of Israel would be gathered to Shiloh, to the Messiah. Now, by the way, a lot of times when people read this, they think, well,
1: she knew about the Messiah because everybody back then knew the Messiah was coming. If they think that, they don't really understand how strong the difference was between the Samaritans and the Jews. The reason the Jews believed that Messiah was due is because they had the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel gives specific information showing that Yeshua was due in that generation. The Samaritans didn't believe in Daniel
2: or any of the prophets. So they didn't believe in the Messiah because of the prophets,
1: and they certainly didn't believe in it because the Jews believed it. The only context in which they knew the Messiah was the one we're looking at right here,
2: the Torah context. And the Torah context about the Messiah is about the Messiah, Shiloh, the anointed one, gathering together the tribes of Israel. We have more. Then he says, but the hour comes and now is, when the true worshipers
1: will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father seeks such to be his worshipers. Elohim is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. These verses are fabulous. They're universally true. They're true now. And the Father is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. And by the way, when it uses the word truth here, it's not using truth as you think. You think it's talking about biblical truth? It isn't.
2: It's talking about personal honesty with God. That's what it's talking about. Means the true worshipers
1: meet God right here in their spirit, and they're honest with Him,
2: and He's honest with them. That's what makes them true worshipers. The temple is here.
1: That's what Yeshua is saying. That's why it doesn't matter whether you think it's Gerizim and we think it's Jerusalem because the temple is right here. This
2: is where you meet God. And he says, the hour comes and now is. He's telling her the reunification of Israel on the basis of spirit and truth has come. Who could say that to her? It's only one person that could say it. Shiloh, the Messiah, informing her of the news. The reunification of the tribes had come. So what is she saying? I know that Messiah comes. See, she knows what he's talking about, doesn't she? I know that Messiah comes,
1: he who is called anointed one. Now, the reason it interjects that, he who is called anointed one, is because the Samaritans didn't say Messiah like we say Messiah.
2: They knew him as the anointed one. Okay, so it's interpreting the language for us here. That's what it's doing. When he has come, he will declare to us all things. So essentially,
1: she is agreeing with Yeshua, except she's not yet willing to say that he is the Messiah. So Yeshua just says to her, I am he, the one who speaks to you.
2: Did she have reason to believe him at that point? See, theologically, everything he says is right on
1: according to how she was taught. He proved to her that he had supernatural backing from the Father by telling her things about her life that were meaningful
2: to her that nobody else would know. And so by him saying, I am he,
1: he's saying, reunification of the tribes has
2: come. Come in me, Messiah. That's what he's saying. He didn't say this. He didn't tell her the prophecy of Ezekiel.
1: But he believed in it. He believed in the prophecy of Ezekiel. He believed in what all the prophets said about the reunification of the tribes she might not even have known what they said because of their
2: dearth of information from the Jews. But he knew, and let's look at that.
1: Tell them, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will take the stick
2: of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. Certainly Samaria is part of that, isn't it? And
1: the tribes of Israel, his companions. So it's saying the other tribes who aren't of Joseph, who are with him, right? All one stick. And I will put them with it, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick. And they shall be one in my hand. And further on, he says, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations where they are gone, and will gather them. Isn't that just what the Torah says that Shiloh would do? Gather them? I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king
2: shall be king to them all. You see, Yeshua was thinking about the remnant. Do you see that? That's what he was doing. He was thinking about the remnant. And not
1: only that, he was the first one to reach out to regather the remnant. We think of this as a last day's work, and it's completed in the last days. But let us never forget it's Yeshua that started this work. He broke through that barrier, that religious barrier, to reach out. To these remnant people of these other tribes. That's what actually happened. That's where it all started. And it's right here
2: in John chapter 4. The Gospels affirm that what I'm talking about is true.
1: Remember in the book of Luke, right in the very first chapter, we have the angel coming to Mary and announcing Yeshua's birth, and saying he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. Doesn't say over the house of Judah. It says over the house of Jacob. And Jacob includes all the tribes, right? In John chapter 10, now we haven't gotten to this yet, we will. Yeshua says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. They will
2: become one flock with one shepherd. Who is he talking about? Christians teach that he's talking
1: about Gentiles generally as the other flock. But does that fit the picture of what Yeshua was doing right then and of the people he was talking to right then? I'm not saying it isn't true. You know, people can be grafted into Israel. They can be saved through Messiah, regardless of what their heritage might be. But I'm just saying that's not what the verse is about. The verse is about the regathering of the tribes of Israel. You know, you had the one flock that he was from, from Judah, the Jews. But then you have the other flock, which is the estranged people of the other tribes.
2: And in John 11,
1: we have the high priest himself being inspired by prophecy saying that Yeshua would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of Elohim who are scattered abroad. Now again, this is not talking about Gentiles generally. It even is using the term gather as the prophets did, as the Torah does, talking about the gathering of the tribes of Israel. This is a theme that you find in the book of John, in the other Gospels too. They're very much involved with the gathering of the remnant from all the tribes. And I think it's important to realize that
2: started with Yeshua Messiah, and he himself was doing that work.
1: So it goes on and it says, the woman left her water pot and went away into the city. Isn't this amazing? She is so taken by what Yeshua has to say that she even forgets her water pot and just goes into the city because she's so gripped
2: with the need to tell people what has happened. She says to them, come see a man who
1: told me everything that I did. Can this be the Messiah? She could be exaggerating, but you know, I don't think so. I'm thinking the conversation might have been a little bit bigger than what we read. That Perhaps he told her a lot more about who she was and about her life.
2: And maybe that's why she's saying this. And we see what happens. Many believed because of her word, went to see him. And many more believed because of his word. When earlier, before these verses, he's talking to his disciples
1: about his food is doing his father's will, what is he really thinking about? When he says the harvest, the fields are ripe, he's talking about the gathering of the 10 tribe kingdom and the people, the scattered remnant. And the amazing thing is, It was happening right there. All of these believers that came and put their faith in him. And as we go on in the book of Acts, when we get to the book of Acts, we're going to find the Samaritan believers there in the book of Acts, right together with the Jewish believers, gathered together under the one Messiah. The gathering of Israel started 2,000 years ago. And it's time for it to be finished now in these last days.
3: And you find a rest for your souls. You find a rest for your souls. Oh you find a rest for your
0: souls
3: when you walk in his way.
0: You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. The scripture verses referenced in today's program are John chapter 4 verse 1 through verse 45 Genesis chapter 33 verse 18 through verse 19 Joshua chapter 24 verse 32 Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 16 through verse 22, Luke chapter 1, verse 33, John chapter 10, verse 16, Romans chapter 11, and John chapter 11, verse 51 through verse 52. Further teachings and study materials on the Torah as understood from the non legalistic, non dogmatic, Holy Spirit-led perspective that God intended More on the history of Israel and God's people Yeshua Messiah His mission and the work He's doing now The Living Water The Twelve Tribes of Israel The Remnant of Israel Worshipping in Spirit and in Truth Bible Prophecy and the regathering of the remnant of Israel in this final generation, along with many other related topics, can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom! Oh, find rest for
3: your you in Stand at the crossroads and look Ask for shed high
0: You've heard that the book of Revelation foretells apocalyptic events at the end of the world. You've heard about the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. You may have even heard Eliyahu Ben David's programs on Revelation or read his book entitled Announcing Judgment Day. But do you know what the book of Daniel foretells about the last days? Are you aware of the current events that are reshaping the world closer and closer to the One World government described in Biblical prophecy? Eliyahu's Daniel Seminar includes new revelation from Daniel that has been sealed for nearly two and a half millennia. Join us as a free member on our community site, Sion Tabernacle, for access to our free eight-part video seminar entitled beasts of Daniel surfacing. To see what other free resources you'll get as a Zion Tabernacle member, go to zion.org and click join us in the menu bar. That's t-s-i-y-o-n dot o-r-g. Then click join us.